0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Adams, a senior editor at Slate, and this is the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. On this episode, we're talking about Brian De Palma's Blowout, a truly paranoid thriller about a Philadelphia sound man who accidentally records the murder of a presidential candidate. Or is it a murder? No one else is convinced a crime has even been committed, so Jack, played by John Travolta in what remains the best performance of his career, starts trying to solve the case himself, even as nefarious forces are trying to erase anything and anyone that might lead to the truth. Like all Brian De Palma's films, Blowout is steeped in references to other movies, not least Michelangelo Antonioni's Blowup, from which it sort of takes its title. But it's also intensely personal in the way it depicts Jack's struggle to get people to take him seriously, even as he spends his days making low-budget schlock, and in the way it explores the streets of the city where De Palma is raised. So who better to talk about it with than my fellow Philadelphian, Kerry Rickey, Carrie was the longtime critic for The Philadelphia Inquirer, and before that, The Village Voice. These days, she writes for Yahoo! Movies and The New York Times, as well as for her own website, Carryricky.com I'm so glad she could take the keystone up to Brooklyn to talk with me about this movie. Carrie, welcome to the club. Thanks for having me. So let's start just kind of talking about your history with Blowout, and maybe with De Palma generally. I mean, we, uh, we both came in from Philadelphia this morning. Took the train in from 30th Street Station, waiting at Track Seven, right near where the prostitutes oh. murdered in the movie. It's but so exciting.
0: See, I didn't see John Lithgow walking on the catwalk.
1: Ah, uh, well, they're not supposed to. Okay. Yeah, he, was he, he there? He, well, yeah, he just doesn't want you to see. He was probably bending okay. down and, and wiping blood off his shoe. Um, I, I guess (laughs) before we get into the discussion, this is a good place to remind you that these, uh, podcasts, well, we're not going to go out of our way to spoil things. We are going to talk about the whole movie including the ending, which is a very distinctive one in this case. And just in general, these podcasts are going to be designed to listen to after you've watched the movie, or if you're not too finicky about spoilers so tell me about your history with with Blowout kind of you know when you first saw it and how you've watched it over the years.
0: Well, the first time I saw Blowout was in 1981. I was a film critic for the Village Voice then and I think I watched it in the context of Brian De Palma's career and you know, noticed things like, oh, he's always making movies about the nerdy guy who tries to save the girl. And I guess the second time I saw it, I actually noticed the political angles and how much it seemed to be a distillation of the Kennedy assassination, the Teddy Kennedy incident at Chappaquiddick, Watergate. And I guess to skip backwards a little bit, as an auteurist, I kind of noted how obviously blowout is a tribute to Antonioni's blow up, except instead of photographs being blown up, it's sound being amplified. And he was also very interested in Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, a movie that came out as Watergate was happening and being investigated and kind of seemed to have presaged what happened in Watergate. And then the third time I see it, I'm living in Philadelphia, and I'm kind of seeing its imagery as... A new Philadelphian, and De Palma grew up in Philadelphia, and he saw the city quite differently than I did, yeah. and and played with its geography and certain places that no longer existed by the time I moved there. Yeah,
1: both De Palma and and Travolta were coming off kind of huge hits and kind of a string of hits. De Palma had just made Carrie, and then after that, Dressed to Kill, which was a huge hit. Travolta was coming off. Grease and Saturday Night Fever, so they were really both at what was then at least the the peak of their powers. I mean, what was what was De Palma's reputation like at that point? I mean, they were certainly like Pauline Kael had been a very prominent champion of his in the New Yorker, and if you go back and and look at her review, it's a, a two column review, and more than a full column is taken up with kind of this peon to Travolta's performance, which I think remains, and a lot of people agree, remains kind of his best. But was De Palma kind of a cult figure at that point?
0: I think that De Palma was second only at that point to Francis Coppola and what was called the movie Brats. He was taken very, very seriously. He's very talented filmmaker. He'd been making movies since the mid-60s. I think everyone approached the movie like, will this be the Godfather or will this be the conversation? Basically, will it be this big commercial, wonderful, enduring hit or will it be a smaller, eccentric look at the culture? And I think it was a little bit of both, although it wasn't, it was never a big commercial hit, but it always had a lot of fans.
1: Yeah, and it's that's, that's interesting. I was thinking that. I mean, it is kind of an attempt to do both of those things at the same time. And the movie was financially a failure. I I think it kind of put a big dent in both De Palma's and Travolta's confidence. I think they, you know, rightly felt like they had made certainly something close to a masterpiece. If one with a, an exceptionally downbeat ending, which was not going to, you know, necessarily get them the biggest box office, but it was like a pretty dramatic failure, certainly in financial terms.
0: But even at the time, it seemed like a classic. And today, it seems even more pertinent to political investigations, dirty tricks, foul play. And while in its own time, it was a commentary on Watergate. Today, it seems very opposite in a presidential administration where there are alternative facts.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, it's really fascinating to me to look at it in the context of the series and and talking about these kind of paranoid conspiracy thrillers, because I don't think that Blowout is, is sort of certainly not kind of a canonical conspiracy thriller. It's not like All the President's Men or The Parallax View, both of which we're, we're also talking about, or or The Conversation, which you mentioned, um, which is a movie that De Palma was both a huge admirer of. There's actually an article where De Palma interviewed Coppola about the film because he was just such an admirer of it and just wanted to talk to him about it. And it's definitely one of the movies that Blowout is, and I'm about to make a horrible pun, and I apologize for that, um, but it's one of the movies that Blowout is in conversation with. Um, (laughs) It it was right there. I couldn't avoid it. But the conversation is kind of very much a kind of unabashed art film, and, and Blowout is something that's going for at least overtly, kind of more commercial. And in a weird way, that makes it kind of more subversive and and difficult to deal with. It starts with this fantastic sequence. That looks like a out of Porky's or Sorority Night. Yeah, it's this really kind of schlocky horror movie, this um, Steadicam shot operated by another great Philadelphian, Garrett Brown, inventor of the Steadicam. And uh, it's this kind of Point of view shot that kind of seems like a little bit of a, a slap at a, a kind of sloppier version of the same technique in the movie Halloween. With more nudity. <laughs> yes, yes, with even more gratuitous, uniformly female nudity. So it's a, it's a shot of this, what we later catch a glimpse of this kind of knife wielding killer peering in through the windows of the sorority house where all the women are dressed in semi-transparent lingerie and kind of Frederick's of Hollywood type of
0: lingerie, which not a lot of collegians wore in 1981. (laughs) Yes.
1: Those were dark times. But, um, and then we kind of, you know, follow it inside. There's a woman who is for some reason, masturbating on a couch in an open common area. <laughs> and, then, and then, as soon as the camera turns toward the sign on the door that's a shower, we know exactly what's going to happen. Of course it does. And, and that scene is, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, kind of sticking it to Halloween a little bit, but as also De Palma had acquired something of a reputation as sort of semi-highbrow schlockmeister at this point, certainly with... Dressed to Kill, or I believe it's before this movie, there was a kind of a Saturday Night Live sketch. There's some poster for some De Palma movie, and it's about like which Hitchcock movie can I make next, and you know, is there a part for my wife in it?
0: But both Carrie and Dressed to Kill had very sexy shower scenes and shower nudity, and he's also parodying himself in this opening scene. You know, get the audience hooked in the first shot, show them female nudity, and they'll stay.
1: I mean, it's a very, and I think deliberately although we can talk about the extent to which that lets him off the hook, but it is a very consciously kind of have your cake and eat it too movie. I don't think we've mentioned Vertigo yet, um, Hitchcock's movie, but it's very much indebted to that movie, both in straightforward plot terms. It's about a, a man who's made a horrible mistake trying to make up for it and then making the exact same mistake again with the same sort of fatal consequences. And there, I've just spoiled the ending for you. You're welcome. But it is also a movie like Vertigo in that it, it seems to be maybe the fullest expression of this director's kind of compulsion to film particularly sort of sexy women and acts of violence and often the two things combining in a somewhat unsavory manner. And it's kind of about that compulsion, and it is, at the same time, kind of helpless to move away from it. De Palma's original title for the movie, he wrote it himself, which is not, by any means, always the case with him. But when he was first writing the movie, it was called Personal Effects, with an EFFECTS. And that is, if you watch closely in the movie, that's the name of... The sound effects house that john travolta's character runs and i think it's just you know very very personal movie as, as you mentioned it's you know revisiting a lot of the places of brian de palma's philadelphia upbringing it is very obviously the movie of someone who knows the city well it's one of the few movies shot in philadelphia that looks like philadelphia even 36 years later i mean a lot of the locations are very recognizable there's a um Shot near the beginning, where John Lithgow's character, who's kind of this nefarious, possibly ex CIA guy, yeah, and he's going into this police garage with no trouble at all, just basically walking right into this police impound lot where they're holding evidence in the death of a presidential candidate, which is one of <laughs> one of not a few pronounced departures from plausibility in it, but. They put that garage right on I guess Arch Street as you're approaching the Ben Franklin Bridge. This is clearly not a, a intentional um, reference on his part, but it, that particular stretch of street is every time I kind of drive downtown to go to the Ritz Five movie theater, which is kind of the major art house in Philadelphia, go right down that block. And it's funny too, in a movie that's so much about movies and the obsession with them. It's funny that that little piece of street figures so prominently in it.
0: Well, it also figures in Marnie, that piece of art street. That's where Sean Connery's business is in Marnie. So I always thought it was intentional, Yeah, (laughs) a lot of De Palma's movies are about kind of the nerdy, brainy guy saving the girl. This very much drives this movie as well. It had very much succeeded in dress to Kill. This is a real personal movie in that Travolta plays a De Palma-like guy who describes himself as kind of a science nerd. I built radios. I always won the science fair. And that's who Brian De Palma mm-hmm. was as a, as a teenage guy. He knew the physics and electronics of everything. His father
1: was a famous surgeon, so he knew the anatomy of things, too. Right, and his father actually used to take his kids into the operating room with them to watch him. So De Palma kind of got an an early, literally clinical look at kind of blood and, and guts. And the kind of famous, infinitely repeated story about him, which I will repeat once more, is that he hired a private investigator to track down and document his father's infidelities, which becomes this kind of primal scene for both him and for his movies it's i don't think a coincidence that dennis Franz's character in this movie is that kind of pi and there's this kind of you know moment of horror for john travolta's character where he's probably the last person in watching the movie to figure out that nancy allen's character is a prostitute or some sort of woman of ill repute but that she is Franz's henchwoman i guess she is her job is to kind of lure men into these in flagrante delicto scenes and then get him to photograph them and i guess it's, i guess it's implied that she manages to get out there without actually having sex with them but she's certainly that's her her role she's the right. seductress in those scenes
0: what do you make of how the movie very clearly talks about how movies are made their image their sound you have to sync them together But feature narratives do that and lie about what actually happens. But there's these things that are meant to be used to frame people that could be used as documentary evidence of of an assassination, like the Zepp Ruder film. And it really looks at different types of films. He's taking us into the process of making films, how you can lie and how you could make them look real as evidence. And he's playing with that
1: in a really interesting way. Yeah, it's interesting how kind of squarely that dates this movie now because it's and I <laughs> and I wonder what people who've grown up entirely in the digital era almost make of it because it's so much about cellulo- the mechanical it's, era yes, of filmmaking. <laughs> celluloid film and and you know, magnetic sound recording and reel to reel tape. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean it it's all this incredibly sort of you know, fascinatingly outdated now technology. And there's even a a scene where um, Lithgow's character, when he's pretending to be this TV news producer, is asking, oh, is is the film, you know, is it eight or 16 or 35, you know, kind of inquiring into the the gauge of the film. It is really fascinating. And for me, it's thrilling to watch as many times as I've seen the movie. It's like the moment in 2001 where the ape picks up the bone and and kind of (laughs) discovers tools. I mean, watching Travolta turn these frame-by-frame reproductions of this film that Dennis Franz's character has kind of accidentally shot or he was deliberately trying to catch this the senator who ends up being killed at the beginning of the movie in a compromising situation with a woman not his wife but he wasn't intending to photograph his death that's sort of another plot that just happens to be running at the same time or so but the way that he takes these still frames of the film, which is modeled after Zapruder film was reprinted in Life magazine frame by frame in that fashion. And De Palma was not surprisingly obsessed with the Kennedy assassination by his own token. So Travolta kind of cuts out these frames and initially makes this kind of primitive flip book out of them and then and, you know, photographs them frame by frame and turns it back into film. And it's like watching you know, Edison at work in his lab or something like that, it really feels like you're kind of discovering film along with him and it's silent at first and then he adds sound and he's using these kind of legitimate film techniques of syncing up the splash of the car going into the Wissahickon Creek and then running the sound backwards from that, which is exactly how, if you're forgotten to use a clapperboard or something like that, how you would sync up soundtrack with, with film when you were actually making one and it there's kind of a thrilling process of discovery in it. And it is really, you get the sense of De Palma who approaches film, like a kid taking apart radio and putting it back together.
0: Exactly, And also what I really admired the first time about blowout is how it makes you listen. Is that a gunshot or is that a tire blowout? And it makes you listen to an owl hoot, and the owls shudder when something is about to happen. And it's, All listening. The movie is very much about listening and the irony of the things that Dennis Franz is saying as he tries to seduce Nancy Allen, a dumb bunny character. Yep. She doesn't know a lot and she's very funny and she's very literal, but everyone else is able to easily persuade her to do what they
1: want. She's usually a tool for all the men. Well, yeah. And she has this line near the end, which ends up being terribly ironic or something where she says, like, the only times I've ever gotten in trouble is when I was too careful. That ends up kind of being her her epitaph, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unfortunately. But it is. I mean, people are very divided on her performance in this film because I don't even think this is a a judgment. I just think I mean, her character is very clearly kind of not so bright. And it's easy to see that as a bad performance or as this kind of condescending portrait of womanhood and i that's i think not unfair but there's a weird way in which he's playing almost like this kind of judy holiday archetype from the 40s or something like that i mean there's that and the the sailors in 30th street station who feel like they just kind of stepped out of a production of on the town there's all these layers of, of movie history kind of interpolated into it somehow including including we should mention de palma's own there's a scene where Dennis Franz's character is, he's rehearsing his lines. Basically, right. he's decided he's going to seduce Nancy Allen, which ends up not working. And so then he gets drunk and tries to rape her, which is also another lovely moment in the film. But the movie that he's watching on the TV is De Palma's own Murder mud which mm-hmm. is actually now included with Blowout on the Criterion edition of the film. So he's kind of referencing his own history. Apparently, he actually wanted to use Dementia 13 But Coppola's first
0: movie. Yeah,
1: and, and kind of as an oblique conversation reference. But Roger Corman being Roger Corman, he wanted too much money for it. So it was cheaper for De Palma to use his own movie instead.
0: Well, Molly Haskell, the film historian and critic, has this theory about the male movie brats and the screaming woman in their movies. And this movie opens with a schlockmeister filmmaker needing a better scream for this sorority row slasher movie. Because the woman who was hired for her perfect breast has a very unconvincing scream. And a lot is made of the screaming woman. I don't want to use today's yardstick to measure the sexual politics of a movie made in 1981. But it's safe to say that this is a movie where no woman has any agency. (laughs) You know, don't even think
1: of it. It's politics. Sexual politics or strictly 1950s porn movie. Mm -hmm. And and again, I mean, you can sort of say like, you know, De Palma's aware of that or examining that that aspect of himself.
0: He's he's sending it up, but he's also employing it.
1: Yes, it is. (laughs) As I mentioned, yeah, to have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. And that's true. I think of Nancy Allen's performance as well. It's always always interesting to remember that he was also like married to Nancy Allen at the time, and this is kind of the roles that he's coming up with her. although I guess the thing with this movie is there was sort of some reluctance on both of their parts to cast her again because he didn't want her, to, or I guess neither of them wanted her to kind of have this reputation as this actress who was only or primarily in her husband's movies. Right. But Travolta, who is. As I mentioned, kind of a big star and probably single handedly or, you know, had an enormous role in just getting this film made, which, even though it wasn't a huge production, it was a $9 million movie, which was pretty substantial for for 1981. And Travolta, who had worked with Nancy Allen and Carrie, wanted her again. He just said, he, Well, they're a great team. But in Carrie, she's very cunning and
0: mean. And here she's kind of guileless and. A dim bulb.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a role reversal because Travolta is kind of a bit of a, a dope, not in a it kind of a lovable way oh, yeah. in, in Carrie. And it, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in addition to the the kind of flipbook scene and adding sound to that in this very, like, this is how you make a movie kind of way, there's there's all these very self-conscious shots that I, I think one of the movies I think has, this movie has such a kind of beloved reputation among cinephiles is that it's very, I say this not in a, in a bad way, but it, I mean, it is very obvious, very kind of style forward. I mean, it is a movie that is very easy to see some of what it's doing right on the surface. And I think you watch it more and more and you see kind of other things underneath it, but there's all this split screen. There are all these what are called split diopter shots, which is where you basically allow the camera to focus on two different planes at the same time. And even if you don't know how that's being done, it's just this very weird thing where two things that are clearly you know, very far apart in the film are both in focus, but then nothing in between them. is. So it's not like a, a wide-angle lens where the whole scene is in focus. You have... You're, example, you're
0: told what to look at, like lighting in Renaissance paintings. Yes. You're told exactly to look at that angel and that ram. Or yeah,
1: whatever. or this this giant owl head and <laughs> yeah. that tiny man in the background. Or So it, it's a movie that makes you very aware of both what you're watching and what you're listening to. I, I think it was maybe... This time is maybe the first time I've watched the movie at home instead of in a theater and you know it's my living room is not the size of a movie theater so it's a much more kind of compressed sound stage and that opening scene where you have this kind of heavy breathing of the killer and this cheesy horror movie music and stuff it felt really oppressive to me it's it's kind of deliberately bad very muddy compressed sound mix and it just kind of feels like it's coming at you from every corner of the room and just kind of overwhelming you with these horrible noises that you can't even figure out what they are there's something very unsettling about it right from the beginning
0: well he's a very talented filmmaker i always thought the title of blowout should have been Ear witness <laughs> because travolta is there he can't see what happens but he can hear very clearly what happened And the classic De Palma, save the girl scene is when Travolta dives into the Wissahickon Creek, which is a uh, tributary to the Schuylkill River. And this car is sinking in the water. And he gets a rock from the creek to try to open the windows and open the door. But of course, being underwater, everything seems to be in slow motion and the rock doesn't have the, the same weight that it would if it was on dry land. And it is really one of the most terrifying... I mean, people have dreams like this of being underwater and not being able to move fast enough to save themselves or save save another. And as a technician of suspense and fear, he probably has no equal.
1: Yeah, and I think this is certainly at the peak of his powers as far as that stuff is concerned. I mean, I think there's a real... I mean, you often get with De Palma and certainly a complaint people raise with him all the time that he's just this movie geek that he's just interested in technique. And I think in his less good movies that technique is kind of all there is but this is one where the subject matter of the film and its emotional content is really just perfectly in sync with that
0: i think his technique really gets you inside the characters and every time i watch it i have a heightened sense of hearing and seeing and that's what movies are about you know it's a movie about our heightened sensory
1: qualities when we're watching movies Yeah, I mentioned Travolta's performance a little earlier on, and I'm not sure if there's a better segue into it than like, let's talk about how great he is. But boy, John Travolta is great in this movie. I mean, I think if you run into some poor benighted person who doesn't understand what a great actor John Travolta is, and he's certainly given us plenty of movies that provide evidence to the contrary (laughs) but if you want to explain to somebody why john travolta is a great actor i feel like this is the movie you show them
0: oh it's a wonderful wonderful performance he's just grown into his maturity and he plays an intellectual and someone who really can see ahead and put things together he really can synthesize ideas it's wonderful i don't think he ever had another performance where he played someone who wasn't kind of dim. And, I mean, can you think of, I I guess, his performance in The People vs. O.J., he plays the lawyer, and he's obviously smart. But this, you can see his intelligence in this movie, and his beauty. And you understand why well, he's a star.
1: And <laughs> you know, there's a great interview between De Palma and Noah Baumbach on the Criterion disc that's an hour long and also figures in the feature-length documentary about De Palma's whole career that Noah Baumbach made, where De Palma talks about how many of the great kind of classic male movie stars of the classic Hollywood era people like Cary Grant and Jimmy Cagney were dancers or, you know, came to movies from stage and kind of being triple threats. That's something he really appreciates about Travolta is just how gracefully he moves. And there's a scene where he's kind of moving equipment around his recording studio and just pulling a cart full of reel-to-reel tapes from one place in the studio to another. And he's just kind of doing it backwards and doing this little shuffle step. And there's nothing artificial about it. You don't feel like he's you know, trying to do something really interesting with his body, but just everything he does is worth looking at in this film. I mean, it, it's interesting to think of him as this intellectual character, because one of the things this movie, like Vertigo, I think this is where they kind of overlap most poignantly, is really about is about the kind of sterility of that intellectualism and and really a kind of impotence on his part. You know, Travolta is someone who knows from the beginning what really happened on this you know road by the edge of the Wissahickon Creek. He knows that he heard a blowout. He knows that there was a girl, as he calls her, in the car. And eventually he knows that, you know, the tire was shot out and there's this conspiracy going on and no one cares. I mean, it's not even just that, that people don't believe him although in some cases that's also true, but it's just that they don't give a shit. There's this scene in the hospital where John McMartin, who is kind of this aide to the the dead senator, is talking to him, and it's this weird, I don't even know if it's intentional, but it's this weird overlap with all the president's men where McMartin is kind of this sort of heroic managing editor figure or something. But McMartin says to him, you know, well, let's just not say that there was a girl in the car. This is a married man. He's dead now. We don't need this to be in all the papers. And Volta says you know, well, I don't know if I can do that. You know, it's the truth, isn't it? And McMartin's response is, well, what difference does that make to you? So it's, yeah, it's the truth, but who cares?
0: Well, we don't know at that point whether McMartin is covering up was an accessory to the homicide. It's it's very creepy. What do you want me to do? Just say she wasn't there? I mean, uh, I already
1: told the police. That's already taken care of. All right, what about the girl? I'll talk to her. Sure, she'll cooperate. So just one playmate just vanishes from McRyan's car just like that? That's right. Oh, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> can't, can't you keep your mouth shut? It's better the governor died alone. I just don't know if I can do that. I mean, I was there, she was there, and. Uh, Who gives a damn that you were there! You want to tell his wife that he died with his hand up some girl's dress? Or maybe you'd rather she read it in the papers. Well, that is what happened. I mean, that is the truth, isn't it? Well, what difference does that make to you? It, there's
0: not a lot of nice characters in this movie. Everyone, Everyone's working on Angle.
1: <laughs> no, everybody is. <laughs> yeah, everybody is. There's a lot of, of steedy There's a lot of red in this movie, a lot of red gels and red walls. Yeah,
0: and, uh, supposedly because everyone lives over a neon sign. It's noir in color.
1: Yeah, it just makes the whole movie look kind of like a red light district or something. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about this movie in the context of these conspiracy thrillers because, as you mentioned, we don't know if, if McMartin's date is kind of in on the conspiracy or not. And despite the fact that it is kind of a political thriller, in some respects, I mean, the movie seems very uninterested in pursuing that particular aspect. I mean, the conspiracy, what we see of it amounts to john lithgow's kind of rogue killer who seems to be making up his own rules, then at some point seems to be much more compelled by getting off on murdering these women purportedly to create a kind of cover story for when he eventually tracks down and kills nancy allen and then one other guy in a phone booth who he talks to for a couple minutes and then says he never wants to talk to lithgow again and we don't know who's behind this what their motives are other than getting this guy out of the race who was going to challenge the president for uh, the nomination. The shadowy figures kind of stay in the shadows in this movie. And it's really not about... It's not about exposing them the way all the president's men is about exposing the
0: Watergate plumbers and following the money. It's about the ordinary guys who
1: see it and are about bringing it to light. Yeah, I mean, Travolta has this line, I think it's in the hospital scene as well, where he says, I'm not going to stop until the whole world knows the truth. Or something like that. And I I think I always forget that line is in the movie because it just doesn't sync up with anything else. And that's not even what motivates him. They give him this backstory in the film, it's a little on the nose, but of how he used to work for the police and he wired up this undercover cop and his equipment malfunctioned and he got the guy killed and that's the equivalent of the scene at the beginning of vertigo where jimmy stewart is dangling helplessly off the edge of the roof and this uniformed police officer falls to his death that's kind of the incident that he needs to make up for somehow and that's really what's driving him it's a chance to make up for this personal mistake it really doesn't have anything to do with everyone needs to know the truth
0: But, you know, certainly in 1981 America, we're, what, five years after Watergate, another Republican president. We had four years of Carter, now Reagan is in office. There's the sense that people are in power, that the liberals like the Travolta character have no sway over. Right. And when I watched it this time, it was really amazing to see how relevant this movie is to our current era when we're talking about a president that might be involved in cover-ups. And alternative facts, you know, this is a story that does not resolve itself in America, and blowouts seem particularly relevant <laughs>
1: or opposite
0: to to today.
1: Right. I mean, if there's a political aspect of the film, and, and palma is, uh, if you watch his earliest films or some of his latest ones, like Redacted, I mean, you know that he's a pretty, his politics are kind of determinedly left wing. But if there is a political undercurrent to this movie. It's really just that everyone loses and there's no way out. You have this very unpopular president. I think the poll at the beginning, it's, it's something like the guy who gets killed is running at 66% and the president's at 23 or yes. something like that. So is that <laughs> is that Nixon unpopularity or is that Carter unpopularity? I don't know. But it's, Could be either one. <laughs> but yeah. But you, you don't get a sense of what either of those presidents stand for. And it's this thing that kind of only exists on TVs in rooms. It never really gets any, any closer to the Travolta character than that. But if there's a political conclusion to the movie, it's just kind of that it's all bullshit. I mean, the, the climax of the movie takes place in the middle of this kind of trumped up and totally invented for the film um, holiday called Liberty Day in Philadelphia, which is this gaudy pageant of patriotism and, and red, white, and blue. And it becomes the scene for this murder that takes place in front of a giant American flag, with fireworks going off overhead, and people in colonial garb carrying ineffective wooden rifles and things like that. I mean, it's just all a lie. Well, there's a lot of intentional humor about
0: patriotism, in that the serial killer in this movie is called the Liberty Bell Killer, and one of the great scenes, the Palma set pieces. Um, Travolta has a very fast drive from 30th Street Station, which is like our Penn Station, across town. And he drives through the apron of City Hall, which was not meant to be driven through. And he crashes into um, a department store window where the displays are liberty or death. Liberty means the liberty killer. And this is the death of liberty. And it's kind of creepy and maybe cynical, but very depressing.
1: I mean, I think that it's such a wonderfully appallingly sick joke in that scene because i think it's actually meant to be sort of a patrick henry display and the character is about to be hung in the display kind of standing on a chair or whatever and travolta's jeep crashes through the window he knocks him off Uh, this pedestal and actually hangs patrick Henry. (laughs) (laughs) so it's it really could not be any blacker or or more cynical
0: i think maybe mordant is a better word here because i don't see this as a cynical movie I think it's just very black humor.
1: Yeah, I mean, mordant is a good word in any situation. So <laughs> I'm happy we had a chance to, <laughs> to, use it. to use it here.
0: What do you think? I mean, just you're a guy. True. What do you make of all the women in this movie being kind of whoreish? I mean, there there's an... And op- they all look alike. Yes. They all, they all have curly hair and are wearing little bunny coats.
1: Yeah. And that is text in the sense that John Lithgow's character is murdering women seeking out women who look like nancy allen's character and murdering them to kind of create this fake backstory of a serial killer who likes curly haired blondes also kind of this reference to hitchcock's predilection for blondes and murdering the same woman over and over again i mean there's a very i think obvious and also correct reading of the film that it's just misogynist i don't think you can deny that i think that's a really broad ugly Streak that runs right through the middle of this film. I think it is also at least aware of, and if not exactly critical of, at least kind of conflicted about that aspect of itself. I mean, I was really struck rewatching it by uh, the second murder, which is the prostitute who is strangled in 30th Street Station. It's a kind of drawn out suspense scene where you see Blithgow's character coming over the edge of the next stall in the bathroom towards her. And they are kind of these low angles so that you you see that he's coming, but she doesn't know. And for some reason this time, I didn't even remember if she was killed or not. I, I was kind of, does she get away? I can't remember. Does he actually do this? And it draws out this woman's death in a way that, I mean, I find really not only unsettling, but kind of distasteful. I well, mean it- it's
0: it very much is like Hitchcock's Frenzy, which was, I believe, Hitchcock's first movie when the rating system yeah. changed and you could really make R-rated movies. And it's a very long, drawn-out strangling with a piece of wire that's embedded mm-hmm. in his watch. Yeah. It's like this Dick Tracy gadget or James Bond gadget with which he garrots her. I mean, when the rating system was invented so that Americans could make more sophisticated movies like the Europeans. Suddenly, a lot of directors were told not to repress their extreme ideas. And a lot of ugliness came out. And I think when I saw Hitchcock's Frenzy for the first time, I thought, God, he doesn't like anyone. (laughs) He doesn't like any females in this movie. And it was really off-putting. And it took me till the second viewing to notice this about Blowout, that the women aren't Really likable, and they're just expendable, and they're fungible. You know, they all look alike.
1: Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I I really did have a sense watching that scene, just like this isn't something I want to see. Like, I would like to skip past this somehow. Like, I just I don't want to watch. I don't want the premise of my involvement to be whether or not this woman's going to get her throat crushed. But at at the same time, one thing that stuck out to me is that character is she's in the bathroom stall kind of brushing her teeth. And the, the way that scene works out is that she's made this deal with this sailor, which it, and De Palma kind of shows you the whole transaction there, where they're arguing about how much money she's going to spend, and Lithgow is kind of overhearing them. And they eventually settle on going into this phone booth in a corner of 30th Street Station, and she's going to give him a blowjob, and he comes too fast, and he's mad at that, and only gives her five bucks, and then Lithgow sort of pretends to be this well-heeled John who's going to Pay her for her time after having just gotten stiffed by this. Um, no pun intended. By the, no, no pun intended. By this other client. And you see kind of her genuine happiness that, like, okay, I'm actually going to make some money. She holds up her hand you know, five, saying five minutes. And she goes to the bathroom to brush her teeth. And, it, and it's partly this kind of see the detail of she's you know brushing the taste of this blowjob out of her mouth before she goes on to the next john but there is something almost like kind of touchingly personalized about that it shows the character this kind of specificity and attention that keeps her from being just another disposable whore like um say like some of the characters in, in michael powell's peeping tom or something like that which is a, another movie where it's like okay this is about your messed up misogyny But I still am not entirely sure I want to watch you explore this at the moment. Like this just, you know, is unpleasant for me to watch.
0: Though the scenes like this give me pause, I really have to say I enjoy Blowout. It's very interesting. It's I actually like Nancy Allen's performance, even though it is dumb blonde, dumb bunny. I think she's a really good actress. I don't think her career really rebounded from this movie. Alas, I can't remember a whole lot of movies she's in afterwards except for Robocop and maybe Strange Invaders.
1: And even, I mean, Travolta's career took a pretty big downslide uh, after this, too. Yeah,
0: it did. I He made What Perfect with Jamie Lee Curtis. And, like,
1: Staying Alive and a couple other things, but the movies get much farther apart, and this is that yeah, kind of...
0: this is his slump before the, the rebound with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And he was white-hot from um, Saturday Night Fever through this movie, and this, he got... Colder than an iceberg afterwards.
1: Yeah, it's inter- <laughs> it's interesting to me that you have a very, at the time, a very successful filmmaker and a very successful actor kind of getting together to make this movie about failure. <laughs> There's something very pointed in that. But I wanted to, to circle back around to you've kind of mentioned the, the connection with the current era and alternative facts. I wanted to kind of get into that. Tell me more about, you know, what, what's it like for you to watch this movie in the current era when so many of these ideas about, you know, conspiracies and, whether or not anybody cares about the truth. There's so much in their minds. I
0: mean, in 1981, everyone cared about the truth. Everyone, it seemed that everyone cared about uncovering what went on in the shadows. And one of the tragedies of this movie is you think, oh my God, maybe we don't care so much anymore. But I think we do. I think the political cleft, shall we say, in this country right now, is so pronounced that, you know, we have news stations working on our confirmation bias and telling us what we want to hear. And I just think that we do care, but it is one of these, what is truth movies. And I do care about the truth. I I would have liked to know what happened in the Mary Jo Copain and Teddy Kennedy incident, which blowout certainly plays off of. I would like to know more about Abraham Zapruder and what he saw and heard. I would like to know what the eyewitnesses and ear witnesses heard and saw. And it seems like we have all these tools for knowing what happened, hearing what happened, seeing what happened. And these tools don't seem to be enough to persuade a government, a news journalist. And it's, it's very interesting. I mean, this whole movie is largely about Travolta and Nancy Allen getting the evidence to a newsman. And John Lithgow intervenes and foils their attempts to getting this to a newsman, which would show that the liberal popular contender for the presidency has been murdered. Who has he been murdered by? We naturally assume it's by the other party where the candidate has only a 22% favorability rating. I mean, it's like watching CNN or Fox News right now. This movie. (laughs) I mean... This movie was made in the day when there was three networks who Americans thought were trustworthy, and seeing it now in a time when there is seems to be no trustworthy news outlet that all Americans can agree on is very sad.
1: All right. <laughs> I think we can end <laughs> on that note. So, Carrie Rickey, I want to thank you for coming in and talking blowout with me.
0: Thank you for having me, and I don't know why you didn't comment on my no-makeup makeup look. <laughs> That's a line that Nancy Allen has in the movie. She's a makeup artist.
1: Yes, working the counter at Garfinkel's, right?
0: Corvettes. Oh, Corvettes.
1: <laughs> Why am I thinking of? Oh, <laughs> yes. All right. This has been the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on Blowout, which is currently available on Hulu and Filmstruck. You can also find out more about this movie and others in this movie club by visiting slate.com slash thrillers. We've also got a private Facebook group for members at facebook.com slash groups slash conspiracy thrillers. Our next episode coming in two weeks will be on the Parallax View with Vulture and Roger Ebert.com critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Make sure to watch along with us. The series is produced by Chow 2. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth. And I'm Sam Adams. See you next time.